Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we've got the story of Warrant Officer Machinist Donald Ross. Ross would be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions on the USS Nevada during the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, right at the outset of World War II. And what's really cool about Ross's story is how one man's actions ripple throughout the rest of the war. I'm excited to dive into that. So the USS Nevada was a battleship. It was commissioned in 1916, which is important. It was designed to be used in World War I. Well, it was a battleship. It was designed to be a battleship. But at that time, it's going to be used in World War I. You know, I don't think in 1916 anybody expected the war would be over in two years. So we're churning out equipment as best we can. In that window between the First World War and really Pearl Harbor, the battleship is going to be the thing. This is, the, this is what people want to command. It is the jewel of the Navy, if you will. Now, aircraft carriers are bigger. And there's a ton of other craft across the Navy, but the battleship is kind of it. It's like the heart and soul of the Navy. You know, it's a tank. It's a beast. It's got these 14-inch guns. That's 14 inches wide. That's how big that shell is that it fires. It's got five-inch cannons. It can be used to sink anything in another Navy. It can it can be used to help uh, assault troops as they're invading a shoreline. It can it can shell it can shell inland quite a ways. Those 14-inch shells go a long distance. The battleship is kind of it. It's the peak naval innovation at the time. And the idea, roughly speaking, was that eventually when a country went to war and a navy was involved, the two navies would meet out at sea and have this decisive battle. Maybe a couple over the period of a few years, but the reason a country would win or lose that decisive naval battle was going to be their battleships because they had bigger, badder, stronger, more protected battleships that could outgun the enemy. This was so believed that the Japanese started building these super battleships, things that were twice the size of American battleships. They're huge. American battleships are like 500 to 600 feet long. Japanese are twice that size. Not all of them, just a couple. Um, but that was their thinking. That's, that's what you're going to do. And remember, there's not unlimited resources. So you can look at where countries place their priorities when based off what they're building. By building a super battleship, the Japanese are foregoing other things that they're not going to build. That thing that they could have been building would be an aircraft carrier because what we see as we start to get into the Second World War, especially in the lead up to, but really slaps us in the face at Pearl Harbor, is these battleships are great, but how are we going to use them when they run into air power? All of a sudden, it's not going to be just the battleships that win the war anymore. We've got to figure this other piece out as well. And that's where aircraft carriers really come into play. And the Second World War would be a war fought by aircraft carriers. I mean, they would be front and center in every major engagement in the Pacific Theater. And it could be argued that there wouldn't have been success in the Pacific Theater without aircraft carriers on either side. I mean, the planes that attacked Pearl Harbor, where they come from, right? On the morning of December 7th, 1941, the Japanese launched a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. As they're coming in, they're going to be given attack guidance. And the reason for that is as they enter the harbor or any unit ever enters into the battle space, they're going to have to know what to focus their energy on. It would be a catastrophe for the Japanese if they put all of their energy into sinking American transport ships and turned around and left. 
Like, what good is that? No, they need to sink or destroy, damage anything they can to the most critical ships, assets, whatever it might be at that time. As they enter Pearl Harbor, they're going to be looking for two things primarily. First, aircraft carriers. Well, aircraft carriers aren't there. Luck of the draw, the United States has moved them out of Pearl Harbor previously, and by doing so, probably changed the course of the war. I'm not sure the war ends when it does if the United States loses even one aircraft carrier at Pearl Harbor, let alone the two or three that could have been there. Lucky, they're not there. What that means, though, is when the Japanese planes come over the horizon at 748 on December 7th, the morning of December 7th, and they start looking for targets, and they don't see any aircraft carriers, every single one of those Japanese bombers and torpedo planes zeroes in on battleships. And that's bad news for Donald Ross and the crew of the Nevada, as well as the, set, as well as the seven other battleships docked at Pearl Harbor. Now, the first, the first aircraft in for the Japanese are going to be bombers and torpedo planes. They're, they're uh, slower aircraft. They are hoping for an element of surprise. And it, because of that, they're going to try to put their slower craft in first. If it's going to be a surprise, we may as well use the things that are going to be more vulnerable later. They come in, dropping bombs and torpedoes, and right away, the Nevada is hit by a torpedo, causing major, major damage. I mean, right out the gate. Before 8 a.m., the Nevada is hit. They have, they've got some tasks ahead of them on the Nevada. So they're not tied off to another ship right now. One of the issues at Pearl Harbor was so many of these battleships were tethered to one another that made it easy to maneuver other ships throughout the harbor, made it easier to work on one ship or another, but it was incredibly dangerous when enemy attacks came in because you had two ships side by side. Makes for a double wide target, if you will. The Nevada wasn't tethered, so the Nevada could move. It was mobile. And it needed to start moving for a couple of reasons. One, it's a sitting target if it doesn't move. You know, just like those planes are still coming in, they're moving fast. And one of the defenses, remember we're talking about how are these battleships going to combat this new threat of aircraft? Well, one of them is mobility, being able to move around. And if they can't move at all, that's going to be a major, major problem. They're, they're at an incredible risk of being sunk if they can't move. So they got to get moving. The second is they've already been hit and they're at risk of sinking. So if they're at risk of sinking and the captain and the crew has to start thinking, how are we going to be able to salvage the ship? There's a couple things they can do. They can try to run aground, which is what it sounds like. They can run the ship up onto land. It's not going to be, you know, in a, in a street, um, not going to go up on shore like you might think, but the base of the ship would end up hitting such shallow area that it's essentially beached. Um, what that would do is if the ship would sink at that point, it's sinking in really shallow water and a lot of repairs can be done without having to raise it from the depths of the ocean, because that's, what's going to happen if it sinks right where it's hit. The crew and the ship will go to the bottom of the ocean floor and they may never be able to get it up. Now the technology exists and you'll see it in world war II, where they're going to pull ships up from the ocean floor. And it's crazy to be able to do that. But the crew of the Nevada is thinking, if we have the ability to not have to do that later, let's get out of here. And of course, let's see if we can salvage the ship as is right now. The final issue at play here and why they're trying to get moving is we can look back now and say that the attack on Pearl Harbor was 90 minutes on or about. We can look back now and say the Japanese didn't try to invade Hawaii. We can look back now and say the air attacks didn't continue the next day or that destroyers didn't come alongside and try to shell the mainland or shell the, the islands. We know that today. 
in the midst of the attack on the morning of December 7th, nobody knew that was the case. They had to expect the worst. So one of the tactics and one of the strategies to be utilized by the U.S. Navy and anybody in those shoes would be to disperse, get out of the harbor. They're in this enclosed area where they can't hardly maneuver. They're fishing a barrel. Get out of that barrel. As soon as you can, get out of that barrel. Move out into the open ocean. If they were, you know, a, a comparison, if they're out in the open ocean and the planes have to fly miles and miles between ships, it's going to be a different game than when in one compressed area, you've got 15, 20 ships that you can attack. So... They're considering getting out of the open. They at least want to get closer to, uh, excuse me, they need to get closer to shallow land in case they get sunk. But one of the issues they're going to run into is any other ship that's going to be trying to get out of this little harbor, there's one way in and one way out. The Nevada runs the risk of being sunk right in that area, blocking all of the American ships inside, potentially. It doesn't happen, so we don't know if that's how it would play out, but it's a risk. So the Nevada's got to go. And they got to go fast. They got to get moving. In order to get moving, they need power. And that's where Donald Ross comes in. Donald Ross is serving in the dynamo room. That's like a generator room. It provides electrical power to the ship. Now, a problem with the problem with serving in that room, especially when the ship has been hit, is that it's under it's not up top, it's down beneath deck, which means that he is inside the ship that is on fire. It's there's fuel that's been spilled that's burning. There are munitions cooking off, but by luck of the draw, they were in the middle of changing out their major 14-inch shells. So they had just removed all of the big shells and hadn't yet brought the new ones on board. Talk about lucky. But there's fuel burning everywhere. There's smoke. There's steam. There's gas. I mean, it's a nasty, nasty area to be on that ship. It's hell. Down beneath deck, you have Donald Ross working in the dynamo room to make sure the ship has power so they can continue to maneuver hopefully survive. But it's an awful area to be. It's hot. It's smoky. It's dirty. It's dangerous. Ross understands that danger. You know, these people don't know at any point the ship could go under. At any point, there could be an explosion that kills them all. Ross recognizes that danger and he kicks his men out and says, get out of here. They evacuate. And he takes over every one of their jobs and starts doing them himself. Now, he's in a confined area. There's smoke pouring in. Everything is hot. He can't hardly see. He eventually is temporarily blinded and falls unconscious due to the heat and the smoke. Luckily, somebody finds him, kind of wakes him up, you know, jostles him a little bit. He jumps right back into it, starts doing the job again. Again, the, the job of multiple sailors. Once more, a short time later, he passes out again. Still really not able to see anything, going off a of feel. Again, somebody finds him. Wakes him up, he gets back at the controls, and he continues to stay there, keeping the ship supplied with electrical power so it can maneuver until it beaches at 9.10. That's about an hour and a half after the first wave of the Japanese fighters came in, Japanese fighters, bombers, and torpedo planes. And they beached the Nevada, roughly speaking, right about the time that the attack on Pearl Harbor ends. At that point, at that point, Donald Ross... Um, should be seeking medical attention, right? He's temporarily blinded. He's passed out twice in this area where he easily could have been trapped and killed. Instead, he goes about working the rescue efforts and trying to save men that have been thrown overboard or burned or trapped or anything. He's helping with the rescue efforts. Once that is complete, he finally leaves his post. 
and goes to receive medical attention. Now, for his actions in keeping the ship supplied with power so that they could maneuver in Pearl Harbor, Donald Ross would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Now, his actions are noble, above and beyond the call of duty, and incredible. But let's talk about their influence throughout the rest of the war. So kind of, kind of working alongside each other without knowing it, Donald Ross goes off to, uh, to the hospital where his vision returns and he's made capable of ser- physically capable of serving again. At the same time, although a little slower uh, recovery, the USS Nevada undergoes repairs and before long is made seaworthy and ships off to the European Theater of Operations, where on June 6th, June 5th and June 6th, 1944, they'd be stationed off the, the shore of Utah Beach in Normandy, and they would shell the coastline in preparation for the Allied landings during Operation Overlord, the USS Nevada, the ship that Donald Ross saved. He's aboard. Now, after that, the Nevada comes back to the Pacific, you know, reunites with some of the other ships there at Pearl Harbor with, and before long finds themselves again conducting shore bombardment in preparation for the landings at Iwo Jima. And not long after that, at Okinawa. So what Donald Ross did was he saved this ship that went on to serve in some of the most contested landings of the Second World War, where they were directly responsible for knocking out shore batteries, machine gun nests, enemy positions, artillery, everything. The Nevada was involved in it all. And the ship wouldn't have been there if Donald Ross hadn't been risking his life in that dynamo room to keep the power supplied. But there's a second part to this as well. And this is where I think the ripple across the war is so cool. Untold crew members would have died. If they weren't able to beach, it's likely the Nevada would have sunk and sinking would have cost, let's say, hundreds of lives. How many of those hundreds were on board off the, co- off the Normandy coast in 1944 that instead of passing away at Pearl Harbor were now manning the guns knocking out German pillboxes that would save the life of a 4th Infantry Division soldier storming forward. How many of those, how many of those sailors that could have died in Pearl Harbor had Donald Ross not, saved, not helped save the ship? They were able to help reload and, and cite the weapon systems in preparation for the Iwo Jima landings, or that helped identify targets on Okinawa. The, the Nevada is a weapon system. It's not just a ship. And the weapon system is made up of the people as well as the actual cannons and and the ship itself. Donald Ross saved all of those, and the impact was felt throughout the war. He would go on to serve for 27 years, would retire as a captain in 1956, and in 1992 would pass away at the age of 81. But if you want to talk about how one person's efforts impact across the entire war, it's going to be hard to beat the efforts of uh, Donald Ross. Serving on the USS Nevada, starting in Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, saving the ship by staying in that dynamo room, keeping power, keeping power supplied to keep the ship afloat. Ross be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.